Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Good evening and thank you for joining us for yet another episode of TV7 Europa Stands. Europe faces a wide range of open-ended challenges at a time when European leadership remains obscure. Similar to a headless chicken rushing in every clueless direction, European nations may find themselves comparably periled unless leadership reasserts itself to steer the continent into greener pastures. To deliberate Europe's state of affairs looking forward to this new year of 2022, we're joined by General Klaus Naumann, who is the former Chief of General Staff of the Bundeswehr and the Chairman of NATO's Military Committee. Thank you for joining us, sir. It's my pleasure to be here. Indeed, and I'd like also to welcome Dr. Rafael Bardachi, who is the CEO of Worldwide Strategy, who formerly served as the Spanish National Security Advisor. Thank and you. Colonel Richard Kemp, a former British infantry commander and head of the International Counterterrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Pleasure. As well as Mr. Timo Soini, who is Finland's former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Deputy Premier. Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Looking forward to 2022, General Nauman, we'll start with you. What is the key topic that you think we should focus on uh, looking forward, especially considering that there are so many uh, various distractions at hand that also need somewhat of an attention? Well, first of all, I hope that we will have the time to develop an idea where Europe should be heading for, should be aiming at. We need to unite our capabilities. We need to develop, Germans always like concepts, we need to develop a concept and we have to do it in such an attractive way that the United States will remain committed to Europe. Uh, we have two events which will uh, highlight that. That is the strategic compass of the United of the European Union. And it is a strategic concept of NATO which has to be developed in 2022. So that I think are at least expressions of a vision for Europe in the transatlantic community. Dr. Barakhi. Well, if I may allow to start by saying that uh, it doesn't matter whether two elephants are fighting or making love, the grass is always ruined. The Europeans will need to decide in this great power competition between America and China whether we want to be standing still below all the elephants or jumping into one decidedly. You know? But I think the most disruptive uh, event that we can see in 2022 could be an Iranian nuclear test as a matter of threatening us with more concession or demanding more concession in order to avoid a nuclear arsenal in their hands. So I think we will see major advancement in the nuclear program by the Iranians and that is going to be very destabilizing. Indeed. Colonel Kemp? I think the most significant problem that Europe is going to face, and not just Europe but the Western world, is China. Um, and it's, I think it's extremely important that, as Rafael says, we decide which camp we're in. And obviously it needs to be the American camp 
against China. We've, we've, we've seen, certainly over the last year and more, we've seen increased Chinese interference and attempts to gain influence in the Western Balkans and also in Central Europe. Uh, and, that, and, and of course, there's, there's very significant Chinese involvement and interference in Europe as a whole. So I think that's the key issue that we do need to, to, to confront and do everything we can to try and turn the situation around. That's the most important thing. I think another thing I'd say, as President Macron begins his presidency or France begins presidency of the European Union, that um, one, of, one, of the, one of the fundamental aspects of his presidency he's decided is going to be um, European strategic autonomy. I think we need to be very careful of that because the, the important thing, it's very important that we keep America engaged in Europe and that America and Europe work as closely as possible as one. And the more we go down the pathway of European strategic autonomy, I think the greater the risk that, com that comes to that sort of long-term alliance and NATO in particular. Indeed. Mr. Sweeney? I also think that uh, the relations between Europe and United States is pivotal. And uh, I have been worried several years about uh, the, the also not only the security and military and, uh, and intelligence uh, cooperation, but also economic cooperation. We used to have negotiations ongoing of, on TTIP and uh, various economic ties, but what we have seen is more protectionism and I think that that is not a good thing. Uh, together, uh, the Western, uh, Western countries and U.S., uh, we can uh, have, uh, have a very sustainable and good future. But we also must have our cornerstones, which I have always want to stress out, uh, democracy, rule of law, and Judeo-Christian values. Indeed. Well, let's start with the over... Um, umbrella, if you will, of, of what uh, may uh, ultimately project a shadow upon all of Europe, and that is the strategic competition between, most notably, of course, the United States and China. General uh, Nauman, when we really look at this uh, from a European perspective, why hasn't Europe come to terms with what used to be a natural choice, moving to the the uh, Western bloc with the United States, uh, uh, bolstering the democratic values that have been so dear to our hearts, and ultimately doing so on the foundations that our forefathers have uh, built up upon, and that is the Christian or Judeo-Christian values that uh, see strong va family values, cultural values that ultimately have brought about uh, this, some may call a masterpiece ultimately, uh, that uh, can be seen in different shades of, of uh, European light? Well, from my perspective, most Europeans neglected for far too long that we are in a systemic competition. Uh, we, I think we were, we were really relying on the superiority of the Western value system. And suddenly we recognize that we are challenged by China, which uh, developed a real, I should say, three-pronged strategy. Uh, the one is the Road and Belt Initiative, by which they achieve a strategic uh, advantage, dominating Europe as well as Africa. The second is the China 2025 concept, 
by which they want to achieve uh, industrial superiority and technological superiority by 2025. And the third element, which we neglected, is the systemic aspiration of China to be the domin dominant power which develops a new world order. We have neglected this for far too long. And uh, for that reason... Why is that? Well, we, we, it was a comfortable way under the heading of globalization to look at China as the work bank uh, of, of Western industrial uh, nations. And it was a cheap solution since many things which, in, uh, which enjoyed our citizens were produced in a wonderful way by China at prices which we could never uh, achieve in, in Europe or in the United States. And we relied on that. And we called it, it's a cooperative system. We woke up, I think, in 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID helped us also to make us aware how vulnerable we are. And that is where we stand right now. And we have to develop an idea how we can, to some extent, cooperate with China. That we are too much, I think, connected that we can fully separate. But at the same time, we have to make clear that we are in the Western camp. We are in the same boat with the United States of America in this strategic competition. Mm -hmm. And that we have something which we will never negotiate. And that is our, our Western system of values, the rule of law and democracy. Uh, if we understand this, then I think we are on a, a proper starting point for 2022, in which we have to decide where we really stand. Indeed, Dr. Barraki? I think, I think uh, since the 90s and the Clinton era, uh, we believed, wrongly as we know now, that uh, increasing trade with China will be beneficial for our consumers, as uh, General Nauman said, cheaper things, uh, uh, but also will, with progress in China will come uh, democracy or at least some a liberal kind of uh, govern governance. We know now that they have a state capitalism which is very authoritarian or totalitarian, uh, no respect of human rights, uh, dissidents and everything. Uh, and, uh, but it has taken 20 years for us to realize that fact. Actually, I think we are now looking with new eyes, as General Norman also said, Thanks, unfortunately, to the COVID, when we suddenly discovered that we were not producing any more needles or syringes or face masks or whatever medical equipment we need, and we were totally dependent of the Chinese to sell us their, their, good, their goods. No? Uh, but we also have to realize, as has been mentioned as well, the timing is different here than in China. They have a, what is an strategic view and for us, the strategy has become a collection of tactics, which is not the same. They have a long term over the horizon view, and they, they know how to go from here to there consistently, something we have lost in the last 30 years in our politics, I'm sorry to say. Colonel Kemp? <laughs> Ch China has been fighting the Cold War since 1949 against us. We haven't been fighting back. Yes, we went through a brief period when we were still fighting the Russians in the Cold War, where we we considered China to be an enemy as well, but that changed for us, and we managed to convince ourselves that we were, you know, China was going to come into the international order. They were given admission to the international order, given access to <coughs> our technology, to our markets, and everything else, with a 
understanding by our political leaders that, that this would help integrate them and, and change their society. Of course, it didn't do that. Um, and, and meanwhile, they've been fighting against us at, at every possible opportunity. And, and at the same time, we've been sabotaging ourselves. An, an anti, let's say, an anti-European internal movement against ourselves, which I certainly have seen in Britain ever since I was at school, um, which was in many ways initiated by Russian propaganda and Russian influence back in the days of the Cold War and has continued through. Uh, and, and I think that means that you know, the, the Chinese have great, gained strength, Western countries have gained weakness, and the British Foreign Secretary at the end of last year made, I thought, what was a very interesting speech in which she made the point that we should stop all this nonsense about you know, attacking and destroying our own history, tearing down our statues, and focus on our cultural background and on our history and what makes our countries, not just Britain but other European countries, what makes our countries great and what they are today, and focus on that and building that and using that to counter the, uh, the Chinese propaganda, the Chinese influence and the Chinese malevolent action towards us. Mr. Sweeney? I will carry on more, on, more or less on, 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 on this angle, what Richard said. I think Western, both US and uh, Europe, has uh, gone weaker. We have deteriorated, uh, so to say, in, in philosophical means. And uh, what, what does that mean and what does that enable? China and Russia, they are not afraid of us, they don't respect us anymore, and that enables that they can oppress their own people in the way that uh, is, is, hasn't happened. If we are weak, the opposition in the countries uh, like Russia and, and China cannot operate. They don't get any kind of support. And that is one of the consequences of our weakness. The real challenge to these systems comes now from inside. They are afraid of their own people to, to be more democratic. But now there is no support. Now there is no example, good example. And I think that enables them to be more oppressive and more systematically uh, rough and tough against their own people and against us. Indeed, but with all that being said, and, and I do appreciate what you said, Colonel Kemp, about focusing on our cultural aspects, as uh, Foreign Secretary Kerr said, but ultimately, how can we do that at a day when uh, we live in a globalized world, there is access for any foreign country to intervene in our uh, societies, and ultimately, challenge our societies and our cultural heritage. Uh, if we look at Germany, General uh, Naumann, just to date, we hear in Germany people being uh, debating whether it's okay for us to raise uh, German flags when the, the uh, German uh, football team is playing uh, in a World Cup. So uh, when discussion is about the aspects of national identity to that degree, why would uh, we be in, in a position where uh, the Chinese wouldn't infiltrate our cultural aspects or perception of our own cultural aspects, uh, which have produced uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and so many others? Well, I think if we do no longer have the courage to tell our citizens 
where we came from, what we achieved in the past, and for what we stand, then we will, at the end of the day, lose. And we should make it crystal clear. There is, uh, you mentioned Germany. I should say, I'm proud of what Germany achieved after World War II. We, I know what it means to live in ruins, and I, I have seen the bomb attacks on my home city, Munich. I was on the street when the uh, a bomb hit the neighbor house just 20 meters away. I, and I know what it means to live in ruins. We came out of it. We built something new, a splendid society, a very successful economy, and a free, liberal democracy in which the rule of law prevails. That is an achievement of which the young people should be proud. And if our politicians had the courage to tell them, hey, you, if this flag is raised, it is the recollection to the sacrifices of your mothers and fathers who built this country, and you stand up, you lousy guy, or we'll get you. If they had the courage one day to do it, I think it, a lot may change. But if we continue to look away and say, okay, it's an expression of a liberal society, we do not respect the American flag, the British or the German, so what, what does a flag mean? It's a piece of cloth. If we continue in that way, then we will, be, we will lose the competition against China. Indeed. Dr. Barraki? Well, I, I think sometimes we over think in, 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 in how to fight back uh, this cultural war. No? But I, I remember once, uh, not, not long ago, uh, we were in a debate in a, and, uh, with a very leftist uh, minister. Uh, uh, and I, I asked him, uh, look, if I leave you in the demilitarized, uh, demilitarized zone between the two Koreas, will you run to the north or to the south? And I mean, people have very basic clear idea. I mean, most, of, most of us will run to the south. And if you ask people where you going to spend your second home in, uh, in Shanghai or in the Caribbean, we go to the Caribbean. So I think we need to go back to the very basic instinct of the people to, to recover the offensive. We have been in the defensive too many years, or actually refusing to fight, not even the defensive, just ostrich policy. And, and, and we have to build back a little bit step by step, but with very basic sentiments and ideas, and I think it's possible whether there are politicians today that are willing to risk the position doing that so, I don't know. But uh, I think in the general terms, on the practical terms, I think governments in 2022 should focus in preventing Iran to manipulate the negotiation with Americans and the P3 from European countries and to prevent, ultimately, Iran becoming a nuclear threat because it's not just a matter of the Middle East. It's a matter against uh, the security of the whole world. No? And uh, the great power competition, we, are think, we think we understand the dynamics and will take longer uh, to evolve. But if Iran, by fall 2022, uh, conduct a test, even a small scale, or threaten to jump into the militarization and weaponization phase, I think the world has, will, will be changed forever in a very bad way. You know?
Indeed, and uh, the nuclear negotiations with Iran, at least in, in my perspective, covering <coughs> this extensively over the past several years, ultimately is part of this great power competition. We can see the Chinese coming out and speaking about AUKUS and about Australia in the nuclear negotiations in Vienna. Colonel Kemp, are there practical issues here to basically realize that at this stage there is no European leadership at this uh, uh, issue, there is no American leadership when we're talking about this, there is only a dealing of apologetics, and ultimately when you come as the so-called Rome of the 21st century, i.e. the United States and uh, the, the European nations who are quite capable, uh, each one for their own capacity, when you look at this and the way it's being manipulated, you're, you want to raise certain questions about where is this heading? Yeah, I think um, the, 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 there is a fear of confrontation when it comes to Iran, uh, in particular Iran. There's a fear of, uh, of, of confronting them. And there is, there is also, I think, a, a, an unwillingness, and it's born as much as anything else from naivety and wishful thinking. Um, to, to accept that Iran actually really does mean to get a nuclear bomb and to use it if it wants to. Um, and I think, I you know, I, I, I believe that, you know, the JCPOA, <coughs> the Iran nuclear deal, as worked out by President Obama in the first place, and which is the European Union and the US are now trying to, to recover, that was purely uh, a, a kind of a get-out-of-jail card so that... President Obama didn't have to do anything about Iran's nuclear weapon. He knew, he knew it wouldn't stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons, um, but it, it meant he didn't have to take military action, which was the only other option. So he could have this fig leaf that said, we've, we, you know, we've got the JCPOA, we stopped them from developing a nuclear weapon. And I think that you know, the idea that, that trying to keep, get that back into action and get that back into life is really deeply, deeply irresponsible, and we shouldn't do it, we should walk away. Um, uh, uh, you know, either come up with a better deal, a deal that will actually stop Iran, or be prepared to take military action against them, because that is the only way, probably, that ultimately they will be stopped. And I agree with Rafael completely that, you know, if if we get let them get to the stage where they are capable of producing a nuclear weapon and then testing it, we, we will be in a different world the, the day after that happens. Mr. Soini? Yeah, I agree totally, and 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 I think this is uh, the Iran cases pivotal also in that sense that if they get a nuclear arm or weapon Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Egypt will also have it and then we are at the verge of, of total catastrophe because this is a kind of a rolling stone if the, if the one stone is on the loose it will cause the chain of other stones, and that is why it is so utmost important not to not to not not to give them a chance to have it. Let me ask you this, however: you were uh, the foreign minister of Finland at the time of yeah. uh, the negotiations, and ultimately at the uh, ratification of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was never signed but was uh, basically ratified by the the passing of Resolution 2231. Yeah. Yeah. To what degree were were you consult? Were other foreign ministers consult consulted about this process, which ultimately was uh, represented by the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany, which 
ultimately are the most powerful nations uh, on earth, but at the same time, this threat is not just a, a P5 plus one threat. This is no. a global threat this that is, needs this to be handled. This is the global uh, threat, and I, I think it is more or less wistful thinking as, a, uh, as I come from the little country outside of the military uh, uh, alliances. People tend to think that uh, through negotiations, through the, the kind of uh, processes, we can uh, have a, a result which could prevail, which could be good enough. But that is a wistful thinking. I think that uh, the strength, uh, that is my own lesson, what I have learned in the politics in Finland. We are living next to Russia. What they appreciate, they appreciate that you you are stubborn, you, are, uh, you, are, you have strength, and you have principles. They don't uh, think that you are going to crawl uh, uh, in front of them. Uh, if you don't respect yourself, nobody else would respect you. And this is the basic concept what we used to have. But this GCPOA was the wistful thinking of the whole Europe that uh, the counterpart on this, day, uh, this time, Iran, would love to make a deal. But that is not their intention. Their intention is get the weapon. And we don't, we haven't grabbed that basic idea. We have been negotiating on the different level because they never wanted to give up. Okay. That, is the, that is the basic founding, what I have uh, experienced. General Nauman? May I add one or two points to that? The, the one is, if we look at the traditional nuclear powers, and uh, compare them to Iran, then we can say the traditional nuclear powers developed from the possession of the nuclear weapon a certain degree of responsibility to behave in a rational way. That was true during the Cold War. The Americans and the Russians managed successfully to keep the nuclear genie in the box. And that is also true for the nuclear powers like Britain, France, let's add Israel, also they never acknowledged to have nuclear weapons, but leave it as it is. That is an element which we cannot assume for Iran. Should they have a weapon, they will use it as the most powerful instrument to influence, to blackmail, to pressure other nations. And then they will enjoy what is the big advantage of nuclear weapons, you cannot sanction a nuclear power unless you wage a nuclear war. And they know that. And that brings me back to the JCPOA. It was an instrument by which Obama was able to put the nuclear Iranian issue on this, uh, on this, uh, to the side without being forced to take decisive action. And at the same time, the, the negotiating five countries omitted to make responsible and uh, make Iran responsible for their terrorist worldwide activities. Nothing happened. It was not mentioned. And the carrier weapons, the missiles, were not even included. They were mentioned, 
but they were not included and Iran refused to include them. Well, Iran was called upon, if uh, we yeah, bring about the text of the no resolution itself, no there was no obligation. So now we have an Iran which is at the more, more or less at the brink of being a nuclear power and they have the weapon and they may have a strategic concept how to use them. So uh, I think this is, as you rightly said, an issue of, cl of global dimension. Should we tolerate, and Timo said it, that Iran will become a nuclear power, we will see a nuclear mess in the Middle East. And that's on Europe's doorsteps. Yeah. And Europe will not be able to control it. And should there ever be a nuclear war waged in this area, the impact will be felt by all Europeans. That was a tiny brigade commander when Chernobyl happened. But next to my garrison, we saw the radiation in the forest. And there was just a little less than the bomb of Hiroshima. But then there will be a little more than one bomb of Hiroshima. Indeed. There is also a big difference between the Cold War system and what we may see in the Middle East. No? Uh, the, from the very beginning of the arms race between America and the Soviet Union, they spent millions and energy and personnel on keeping a control and com command control system in place. So avoiding mistakes, uh, being sure that if an order was given, missiles will, will be out, and keeping everything under control. The presidential in the United States and the and the and the Politburo in the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think we will see that in Iran or other Arab countries because of the nature of the regimes. So it will be much more unstable, the situation of uh, who's going to be controlling the weapons or having the authority to press the button, let's say. You know? and that will bring probably a much more prom-oriented attitude of fighting first than what we have seen in the deterrence dynamics between the Soviet Union and the, and the United States of America. With that being said, we do hear some of the top experts here in Europe already defining Iran as a th nuclear threshold state, having enough fissile material in, in multiple capacities that if you put all of them together, ultimately it does have uh, the quantity necessary for a single nuclear bomb, even a small arsenal. But with that being said, its, its delivery systems and, and uh, our quite uh, challenging, at least uh, from an uh, intercontinental ballistic missile. They don't have that capacity yet, but they do have outdated Soviet missiles that were initially manufactured specifically for delivering such weapons. And you have also the means of delivery. I mean, if they are small weapons, you can move it by a truck, you can pass it to some somebody else. Uh, uh, so I think it's a very risky proposition to, to believe, like some people around the President Biden do now, that a nuclear Iran will not change anything. I think we will see a new nuclear era, much more unstable and much more prone to conflict as never seen before. No? So in order to avoid mm, escalatory risk and challenges to Europe and America and the rest of the world, starting with the Gulf and Israel, obviously, I think we need to do all what we can to prevent Iranians, Ayatollahs, to, to reach a, a position where they are totally independent 
whether they take the decision to get a nuclear arsenal, not just a bomb. And yet some may come, Colonel Kemp, and say, but look, we have a country like Pakistan, an Islamist government, uh, a country on the verge of implosion, which has been defined as such for quite some time, uh, with a nuclear arsenal. What is the difference between this country to the Islamic Republic of Iran? Yeah, well, <coughs> as we've already got one of those, let's not get another one to add to it. The, the, the U.S., um, had and still has plans in place to take possession of Pakistan's nuclear arsenal if it needs to for that very reason. Uh, whether those plans will actually be put into place and whether if they are they actually work is another thing. But of course there's huge fear in the US of uh, nuclear weapons falling into the hands of a, 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 a jihadists who launch a coup d'etat in Pakistan or even the voluntary transfer of those of nuclear material, shall we say, to jihadist groups, which was a long-standing fear and one of the main reasons why it was important we remained in Afghanistan. So, you know, let's not, let's not say that it's okay if Pakistan's got it, then Iran should have it, because it certainly isn't. And I think the other thing we should bear in mind is there's probably, there's probably two ways of preventing Iran from getting a nuclear, or for, of preventing the Iranian regime at present from getting a nuclear weapon. And that one of those is regime change. And obviously that regime change um, you know, has, to, has to include a better regime rather than an equal one or a worse one. So you know, that, that's one way of preventing the, the, you know, the potential catastrophe. And that wouldn't be the ideal solution. And the second way is military action. There is no other. I mean, the Iranians are intent on getting a nuclear weapon and having a nuclear capability. They can only be stopped, in my opinion, by military action and that military action is not against the nuclear systems alone because the capability of dealing with it even with American capability probably is not going to just totally destroy their program it needs to be against the government itself against the government and the leadership of the current regime. Mr. Soini I'd like to ask you however when we're looking at it from a European perspective why would Europe be so fundamentally keen on trying to outmaneuver the Biden administration, which uh, seems to be lacking the will to walk away from the table when we're talking about negotiations. And without that will, ultimately, you don't have leverage, doesn't matter how many sanctions you do. Yes, and that is uh, the basic problem on, on this is that many uh, European governments and countries have great interests, commercial interests, with Iran. They have big promises. There were a lot of deals made before, uh, and, uh, and there are millions and millions of uh, uh, euros and dollars and, and investments on the hold. And that is uh, one of the big things that Europeans think generally that this is uh, a negotiable thing. But I believe more like Richard said that uh, there is no intention of that kind from the Iranian side. And I think that Europeans are naive in this sense, that they believe that uh, through the bigger, bigger uh, economics connections and, uh, and uh, uh, dependency on each other, that is the kind of the... the, the um, the medicine to this this thing, but I don't trust on that, mm. and and that is the main thing that uh, what what has 
put this on hold on the European side is that US, even it, if it isn't, hasn't been firm enough, but it has been firm in that sense, that they have said that if the individual firms will go with Iran with some kind of deals, the banking systems are uh, looked very critical way. And that has, in a way, prohibited those firms to go further. There is no other barrier than this which has prohibited them to go forward on economical grounds. Well, that was the uh, exclusion from the Smith, uh, SWIFT system. Yeah, mm. yeah. Which was the most effective sanction that, so that far. Is, that is. And that is hopefully a lesson which Mr. Putin will understand yeah. as well. That and is will he understand exactly, like exactly. But, uh, but I think uh, the Europeans want the Soviet Union disappear. We believe that we were living in a post-nuclear war yeah, world. Yeah. And no more nuclear weapons yeah. of any use whatsoever. We are Disneyland from now on. Yeah, no? that's right. Yeah. What, and that's why we, we took so badly the test between the Iranians and the Pakistanis in the late 90s. And that's why we don't understand the nuclear ambitions of some countries like Iran. No? But for Iran, a nuclear bomb is three bombs, actually. It's a Persian bomb, I mean, a hegemonic regional power. It's a religious Islamist uh, uh, Shi bomb, according to the Supreme uh, Leader. And it's a Revolutionary Guard bomb, the more destabilizing force in the whole region. No? So it's not a normal bomb. It's a complicated overlapping, uh, if you want, a kind of, uh, of onion uh, yeah. uh, uh, bomb for the for the Iranian different purposes and can be put uh, at use by any of them. And um, if uh, I may add another bomb to the mix, a Chinese bomb, considering the fact that the Iranians owe China 400 billion U.S. dollars over the course of 25 years that could be leveraged by the Chinese in ultimately maneuvering on, on a strategic I, level. I doubt sincerely that the Chinese have any interest in the Iranians becoming nuclear because what the Chinese want is uh, presence without any possibility of, of, of uh, counter arguments. A nuclear power has much more power in theory than a non-nuclear power. Uh, so for the Chinese the interest will be to keep the Iranians almost yeah. on the threshold but not allowing, the, not, allowing not having a, a an Iranian bomb. Whether the Chinese will do anything or move a finger to prevent it, I doubt it as well. But I don't think it's in any interest, not Russia or China, an Iranian nuclear power. General but no. uh, Rafael mentioned one point which I would like to underline when he said it's a Persian bomb. That is a, a thinking which is widely spread in Iran. If you talk to scientists, to well-educated people who are opposed to the regime, but if you touch on the great heritage of Persia, there is a, a chord which starts to swing. And that is something which we should keep in mind. Mm -hmm. For that yeah. reason, I think um, the, the nuclear capability of Iran is something which may be supported by many more than the Revolutionary Guards and the regime clerics and so on. And yeah, obviously, at the same time, I'm not worried about the British nuclear forces because the, 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 the government is democratic enough not to threaten Spain, I hope. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, 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 Islamist Republic of Iran with a bomb 
is something very different. Different. Well, as, <laughs> as, as uh, Timo pointed out, the an, an Iranian bomb will create a nuclear. It's already begun uh, a nuclear arms race, race in the Middle East. Region. But the Israeli bomb, which you, you know, we, as, you, as you said, they they allegedly have. Well, we believe they do. Um, hasn't didn't create a nuclear arms race because other countries in the Middle East recognize with the policy of obscurity, right? right in, indeed, but also other countries in the Middle East recognize that uh, um, you know that Israel is not going to use it for an offensive purpose. It's going to be used for defensive purposes. Indeed. Well, I, I'd like to move on to another interesting fact that occurred over uh, quite some time, and that is uh, the fact that in. 2021, we saw a lot of, of uh, use by various countries to try and align themselves w outside of the borders of the Euro uh, Eurozone or European Union and the UK and, and other countries uh, in proximity. We saw many countries, including Russia, joining the non-aligned group and ultimately creating a certain bloc to basically oppose to a certain degree the United States. Europe and, uh, of course, Canada, Australia, and other like-minded nations. How do you see this ultimately impact this uh, new balance, if you will, between non-aligned countries who are quite aligned with each other to countries who uh, are within the democratic Western Hemisphere that ultimately seek to uh, exist under a certain rule of law, but are then also uh, con under contention or challenged by the fact that outside forces are challenging that democratic value or the system and seeking that new world order, which General Nauman mentioned earlier. Well, I think one of the most concerning aspects of these developments is the increased um, cooperation and closeness and increasing, shall I say, between Russia and China. Um, and, and you know, they're, one thing they have in common, it's not the only thing that they need to cooperate over, but one thing they have in common is op opposing the US, opposing the West. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing um, not only an increase in cooperation between those two countries, but also gathering in some of their, those, those other countries, particularly countries that China are able to invest vast amounts of money and influence into their sphere. Uh, with the intention of of, uh, of of opposing the West and opposing the US, and I think the um, you know one of the consequences of of sanctioning countries like Russia for let's say aggression in relation to the Ukraine or other other areas um, is that that it drives them further into the arms of China, and so that there are there are risks of of stepping up those sanctions against um, against Russia. Uh, and, and I, but it, it, but it is an increasingly dangerous problem. I think that we, you know, we will be facing more and more as this year evolves. Mr. Soy, yeah. uh, I also think uh, the continent of Africa, in that sense, that we have uh, lost interest in the West, to the Africa, in the way that uh, it is going to be very costly for us. U.S. hasn't paid any attention to Africa in, in many, many years. And also, for some reasons, also many European countries, is it uh, because of the colonial history or what, whatever it is the reason? But China and Russia are very active in Africa. Both of them are very active in Africa. And that causes problems of many kinds towards us. 
and the, there is a growing population in Africa. There are and they are uh, on the verge of our continent. Uh, the uh, asylum seekers potential uh, crisis and economic uh, factors as well, and 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 I think this is something on the strategic point of view, which also have a big impact uh, to the Middle East. And I think if we have have a look what China has done, oh, of course it's commercial things, they have uh, took the raw materials out of there, but Russia's involvement in, 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 in Syria, in, in the many countries, in Libya, uh, they they are very uh, haftari uh, and, and and that kind of stuff with broken uh, broken countries and and that is something in due course of time will cause a lot of troubles to us in the future very interesting at a time and I'd like to ask you this general Nauman at a time when we see Russia and China and it is not politically incorrect to say that Europe is wary of its colonial history and therefore it is acting. We saw Germany, of course, paying large amounts of money to specific uh, African nations for uh, its history there. But at the same time, the, the Chinese and the Russians are quite creative in uh, colonizing Africa. And, yeah. and it's okay to say that. Uh, we see uh, Turkey, uh, former prime minister, was quite... Uh, uh, vocal about this, Ahmed Tafutoglu, who traveled through Africa and declared that Turkey is going to enter Africa. This brought a certain contention between Turkey and France, which is then manufactured also in the Mediterranean Sea and elsewhere throughout the region. So if we really look at the big picture, this is something that is challenging Europe, ultimately, from its southern flank. Yeah. I fully agree with that, and uh, I would like to mention we have to look at the demographics. Uh, the population of Africa will double until the year 2050. And at the same time, the basis for nourishing the people, housing, feeding them, will diminish probably uh, due to climate change. So we may be confronted with huge migration waves from the south towards the north. The World Bank estimate pu published, I think, five, six years ago was uh, states that approximately 200 million people will move as migrants from the south of Africa towards the shores of the Mediterranean. So we have a, a huge problem, which we cannot solve by any other means but to help the African nations to build places where they can earn their living on the African continent. And we have, to ha we have to help them, we have to finance it, we have to bring people to Africa to make this happen. That's a, a new form of security arrangement and we have to think it through. And the European Union has to think about this. Yeah. And we all have to invest money, but we cannot leave the Mediterranean nations alone with that. Uh, yeah. But um, Also at a time, however, that you come and you invest money in territories which are under Chinese influence yeah, well, and corrupt to the bone? We, we have to <laughs> enter this competition. There is, there is no doubt about this. But we have to see who will be better. 
I think we have a chance to, to do it better than the Chinese. Yeah. In, for many African countries, you hear already that the Chinese attitude to bring Chinese workers to the African countries and to take the raw materials out is not very much appreciated by the Africans. Yes, that's right. Say the latest October <coughs> and the And then uh, two other aspects, which if I may. The one is if we Europeans take on Africa and also more responsibility for the wider Middle East, this is, might be the best formula to keep the Americans tied to Europe, since then we are doing something which make will, will allow them to devote most of their capabilities to the Far East. And on the issue which you mentioned, Richard, Russia and China, it's often mentioned. But uh, I think there is one, one argument speaking against it. If the Chinese would really be prepared to cooperate with Russia, they would only do it under the premise that Russia is a smaller partner and has to obey. And whether this uh, will be possible for Mr. Putin with his overinflated ego, I have my doubts. Dr. Barahi? Well, I think we should focus on uh, baby steps in dealing with China from Europe. But I think we should encourage any political and diplomatic help uh, to make clear that uh, any action against Taiwan's independence will be not accepted uh, by European standards. And uh, uh, it is true that we can cooperate in a kind of regi regional burden sharing with Americans, but also preparing a small capability and military presence in the Pacific will, will, will help the Americans tie to Europe as well. So, but uh, messaging that Taiwan should be accepted as a normal country among the nations is something that can be done easily and uh, it just requires diplomatic, diplomatic uh, boldness. Uh, Political will, it's called, which well, is unfortunately whatever. lacking in all country yeah. in the West. But uh, I mean, if we are serious about China, w we need to do something. If we are not serious and we just want to be perceived to be diplomatically correct, uh, politically correct, okay, uh, let's denounce anything and do nothing, no? as usual. <laughs> but I'd like to actually focus once more about also what we just spoke about, and uh, General Nelman uh, mentioned a little bit, uh, somewhat of a solution, so did uh, Colonel Kemp. When, when we look at the African continent, and we see the challenges that emerge from that direction, Spain is already dealing with high unemployment rates among uh, young adults under the age of 25 uh, with staggering numbers of yeah. unemployment. It's dealing with an influx of illegal migration, uh, which is then exploited by, by multiple, um, both legal organizations and illegal organizations that uh, conduct uh, very problematic activities throughout Europe. What can Spain do, Southern Europe do, with the backing of, of Northern Europe in order to bring about a certain reality that this would be once and for all solved? I think it will require first a change of mentality. I think uh, Europe has all the capabilities to do the Frontex, the policing of the southern border effective, but what we can not allow ourselves now, politically speaking, is, okay, we send the 
the patrol boats, and instead of rejecting them back, we take it all on board and bring it to the, to the European ports. No, I mean, if you are defending the line of your border in the sea, you have to repel the people who are trying to trespass. Engage in the Polish approach? Yeah, and then you have to do a long-term strategy, I mean, uh, the Marshall Plan, if you want, for Africa, uh, to some extent, though we don't have the money now, actually, but we need to put in place the bricks to, to, to root in their places the people. No? Uh, but again, it will be 4,000 million people against a continent of, of 350 in the next uh, 70 years. So the disparity of demographics are there. No? But instead of creating incentive, we should dis disincentive the people coming no? and dealing with what we are, we are seeing, no? obviously. Why couldn't we learn from the United States of America's example with their Corps of Engineers in the 20s? That was a, a, a system of developing parts of the United States through a national obli obligatory service. Why, could, why couldn't the European Union establish a European development core? Indeed. Well, we're, we are drawing near to the end of the program. I'd like to give each and every one of you the opportunity to have a somewhat of a projection for 2020 and what should we focus on please keep it shorter as as we would like each and every one of you to have equal time colonel kemp will start with you i said at the beginning that uh, the, the the most important issue to focus on is is china i would also add to it the the, the very um serious point that general nauman raised about the huge potential threat in the future of uh, immigration into europe uh, uh, maybe not in 2022 but over future years and and we do need to take action i i don't believe it's even i think it's a pipe dream to imagine even with a corps of engineers to uh, to go and and turn africa into some paradise that people want to stay into i think it's a matter of defending our borders if unless we want to surrender our country to vast numbers of immigrants countries we should create we should create a way of of defending the borders and the second and final um, prophecy I'll make is that we will be facing in Europe a crisis, a, a, a significant crisis that nobody has yet thought of and nobody around this room is going to mention but it will come our way and we will have to deal with it somehow. Indeed. Well, uh, let me also highlight before we continue that when we're speaking about mi migrants coming into Europe, we're not speaking about legal migrants, we're speaking about illegal migrants. There is a very clear uh, a distinction between the two, and uh, whoever is coming in through legal proceedings and legally so should be accepted, and uh, uh, whoever is illegally uh, should not. But but of course, we wouldn't, yeah. uh, we wouldn't be addressing these issues to legal immigrants. Indeed. That's, that's right, and, and let's hope that this uh, new coming year, this started year, uh, can rely on the Polish example, because nobody, in a way, accepted that this kind of firmness can exist. And when it happened, it worked. I think there is something to think about. Well, uh, uh, somebody said that governments can deal effectively with one single issue at a time. If that's true, we are doomed <laughs> because we are dealing. We have to deal with Iran, Russia, China, immigration, uh, domestic problems, um, COVID, 
So if the system, using a computer metaphor, is overloaded, it will crash. <laughs> and that's a risk. That's a risk. Uh, I don't know what will happen. There are some revolution in, in the horizon, like the French presidential election with new candidates in place. Let's see what happens. Cheryl Norman. I hope that Europe and the United States will find together in a truly binding commitment to stand up against China and thus persuading China to seek cooperation instead of confrontation. And what else would you tell European leaders who are currently lacking, if, well, especially before the, the French election, an actual leader, and it seems like there's not really a lot of, of glue binding what used to be like-minded nations sharing a certain destiny so-called together. Well, I think they, they, we have discussed this in, in this group time and again. We have to tell them that we have no alternative. Neither the Europeans nor the Americans have an alternative. We have to stand together. If not, we will be defeated. We Europeans first, the Americans second. Indeed. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. And I'd like to thank General Nauman, Dr. Barahi, Colonel Kemp, and Mr. Soini for being part of today's program. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time, next month, for yet another episode of TV7 Europa Stands. Until then, good evening. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.